Well, good evening once again. Uh, we are continuing through our series uh, in part of the book of Acts, which is Paul's first missionary journey uh, in Acts chapters uh, 13 and 14 especially. And we're looking at it through the lens of the Missio Dei, or the mission of God. Uh, the, the progress of the gospel that it makes. And, and part of that progress is the proclamation of the gospel, or evangelism. But perhaps evangelism is a bit of a dirty word. Uh, maybe proselytizing isn't something uh, we tend to think about favorably. Uh, we, we might feel that it's wrong to try to convert friends or family members or co-workers to faith in Jesus, or at least we feel pretty uncomfortable about it. Uh, this anti-evangelism sentiment is evidently growing amongst Christians between the ages of 21 and 35, the oft-maligned millennials uh, of whom I'm barely a part of. Um, in a Barna study released earlier this year, uh, practicing Christians, so not just anyone, practicing Christian millennials were virtually in lockstep with older generations when they were asked if being a Christian meant bearing witness to Jesus. They uh, were in lockstep with older generations of Christians when they were asked whether coming to know Jesus was the greatest thing that could happen to anyone. They, said they were more confident than older generations in saying that they were good at talking about their faith. But when they were asked whether it was wrong to share their faith with someone in hopes of converting them, nearly half of people in this age group, practicing Christians, said yes. And this was a drastic change from the responses of older generations. That it's wrong, at least a significant portion of them said it's wrong. And judging by data like this, and my own experience as a pastor and a millennial Christian myself, I think it's fair to say that there are many people in this room with a deeply held belief that redemption is found uniquely in Jesus Christ, and yet who at the same time feel extremely uncomfortable proclaiming that message to those around them. Does that seem fair? And look, I, I think there are various good reasons for this discomfort. Uh, we live in an urban, post-Christian environment. We're surrounded by people who are highly educated, secular persons, uh, people of all different faiths as well. We live in an environment in which telling someone not only what you believe, but what they should believe uh, comes across as aggressive or even arrogant. We worry about losing social status points. We, we don't want to be lumped in with other groups or agendas that we find embarrassing, maybe even certain uh, other Christians that we don't want to get lumped in with. We don't want people to think that we're racist or misogynistic or whatever else that they might associate with the proclamation of the gospel. And so we're incredibly sensitive, fearful even, and we find the evangelistic task 
uh, which we accept in theory, almost unfair in practice. What does God say to those of us who are in this situation, who feel that way, who deeply believe the gospel is for all people, that it is the word of life, and yet who feel this way, how can we find the will and the courage to engage the deep desire we have to proclaim this gospel to the people in our lives and to our city? Well, that, that's what I want to look at today as we come to Acts chapter 13, verses 44 to 52, that passage that Maddie read. And you can find this in the church Bibles on page 790, or you can turn there in your Bible or on your phone. Uh, before we get into it, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask now that you would speak, for your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So open to that passage. One of the things that's repeated throughout the passage, one of the kind of phrases or words that you see if you look at it closely is the phrase, the word of the Lord, or once it says the word of God. So I want to focus us on that. And I want you to see here that the word of the Lord commands a hearing. The gospel creates an audience. The word of the Lord commands a hearing. Just look at the first verse in our little section, verse 44. It says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And it's so simple that you might glide right over it. But did you hear what it said? Nearly the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. The proclamation that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all things have come to their fulfillment. Paul has proclaimed this word in the synagogue the week prior, which we read about last week and, and heard about, and they beg him to speak again. And this is not an isolated incident. Uh, even on a brief sort of look at the book of Acts, you'll see that one of the major themes in the book is that the gospel garners attention from Peter and Stephen uh, in the early chapters of Acts in Jerusalem, to Philip in Samaria and on the road to Gaza in Acts chapter 8, to Peter with the Gentiles in Joppa in Acts chapter 10, to Paul as he moves out into Asia Minor on his first missionary journey, so on and so forth. Everywhere the gospel goes, it gets a hearing. It commands a hearing. It generates interest. It creates its own audience. And there are two really basic reasons that the word of the Lord commands a hearing. First, because of whose word it is. It is the word of the Lord. See, the word spoken by the apostles here, proclaimed, it's a very human word, a very human communication. It's flavored by their backgrounds and their abilities they make decisions about how to tell it and, and summarize things. They adapt and contextualize it to their audience. And yet, as they prayerfully seek to convey the message about Jesus and root it in Scripture, 
This human word is also the word of the Lord. It's the word of God. And this is not a term that scripture uses lightly, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the power by which God has spoken the universe into existence and upholds it at every moment. The word of the Lord is what Isaiah says uh, that, that does not return to God void, but accomplishes all of his purpose. It's a word of the Lord in the sense that it claims things. It's a lordly word. And the apostle's human word is regarded, it becomes or is the speaking of this divine word with all of its power. And when God speaks through them, things happen. The gospel is like smelling salts that causes unconscious people to kind of come to attention. What's being said here? So it's because of whose word it is that it commands a hearing. The second basic reason is because of the type of communication it is. It is the word of the Lord. The, the Greek term for word is here is logon. It doesn't just mean an individual phrase or a, uh, a magic incantation. It's a coherent message and rationale, a logos, a logon. The apostles give a message that interprets all of reality as being summed up and fulfilled in Jesus. Throughout the book of Acts, they provide not just a story, but the story, a story that absorbs and claim, uh, claims to absorb and claim every other story. It's the story of God's covenant fellowship with humanity, that he has created humanity for fellowship, humanity's rebellion against that purpose, and God's overcoming of their rebellion in love through Jesus Christ. And this is a story that's revealed in technicolor through the people of Israel, who are God's chosen representatives of all of humanity, standing in for God's interactions with all of humanity. So it's always told with the particularity of the Old Testament, but in such a way as to open up and absorb every other history in the coming of Jesus Christ. So it's the word of the Lord, and it's the word of the Lord, and it commands a hearing. What does this mean for us as we face the task of evangelism in a post-Christian secular culture? I just want to say, I think so much of the church's thinking about evangelism in our day and age has already been domesticated by our culture. And remembering that we are called to speak the word of the Lord can reinvigorate us for the task to which we are called. See, most American Christians, myself included, have learned to talk about sharing your faith. As if evangelism consists merely in telling people about a personal experience you've had in hopes that maybe they'll find it relevant for their lives. We find ourselves sort of begging for a seat at the table because we think of our message as a merely human word. But what if you really believed 
that communicating about Jesus, telling his story, was proclaiming the word of the Lord? What if you believed that it was a communication with divine power that commanded an audience? What if you thought it was a story with subversive, encompassing, interpretive power? Wouldn't you be more likely to speak about it to others? And with a sense of confidence and expectation that it is going to do something. See, the word of the Lord, if this is if the gospel is the word of the Lord, it commands a hearing. It comes with power. It creates an audience. It, it commands a hearing. Of course, it has to be said that the word of the Lord generates opposition. That the lordly claim of the gospel confronts other allegiances and challenges them. The word of the Lord generates opposition. Just look at what happens in this story, verses 45 to 47. As the word of the Lord claims its hearing, it necessarily creates a backlash. When the Jews, the leaders of the religious establishment, or the other high-ranking people in the city in this story, see how the apostolic testimony about Jesus subverts and supersedes the story they tell, and thus the power they have, they start to contradict Paul and even revile him. Later in this little section, they stir up persecution, implying some possible violence. But Paul and Barnabas don't shrink back in the face of this contradiction. They speak back with, in confidence in verse 46. The, the opposition makes sense to them because the word of the Lord already itself interprets this too. They find in themselves a repetition of the same thing that happened to those who proclaimed the word of the Lord in the Old Testament and who were rejected by the authorities and sent out. They see in themselves a repetition of what happened with Jesus himself, the incarnate word of the Lord, who was opposed and rejected and whose message then went out to the outcasts. And so at the end of this, in verse 47, they apply to themselves. This is kind of wild. They apply to themselves this Christological passage from Isaiah 42, 6. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They say, we are a continuation of the light that Jesus is to the Gentiles. We are the light. But the larger point here to see for our purposes is that when the gospel is proclaimed as the word of the Lord and not just sharing one's faith, it makes a claim of allegiance. It challenges powers and authorities, and it demands a, ch a change of allegiance to a new king, King Jesus. And it calls people out of their previous religious or political or national or racial or ideological allegiances. It doesn't necessarily obliterate all of them, but it does necessarily relativize them. And the word of the Lord subsumes them. And this is felt as a threat. And you can see this. It's a, in the passage, you, you can see how this will work. It's a threat to the powers and those who are tied to them. It's a threat to identities that have been built up apart from Jesus Christ. It's a threat to alternative interpretations 
uh, of reality apart from Jesus. And thus it creates a fierce opposition. This is a pattern that's also repeated time and time again in the book of Acts. And so we should expect opposition if you proclaim not just sharing your faith, but if you're proclaiming the word of the Lord, we should expect opposition. It's easy to see how the word of the Lord generates opposition out there, isn't it? I mean, you can think of uh, the fierce opposition that Christianity and the gospel faced uh, uh, from the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century or in modern communist China or other countries or with uh, Islam in the Middle East or even from certain segments in our own secular culture, right? And as we proclaim the gospel out there, we are subverting these structures and we must expect opposition. The gospel is supposed to challenge allegiances and bring them under the lordship of Christ. The church proclaiming the gospel should always be subversive. Unless, of course, the church itself has ceased to allow the word of the Lord to challenge its own allegiances. Unless we have domesticated the gospel and cease to hear it afresh and put it into our categories and it loses its critical edge and we lose our critical edge and this is always a danger. Well, how can we keep this from happening? The great uh, Anglican missiologist Leslie Newbegin is helpful here. He spent most of his career as a missionary in India, devoted his life to proclaiming the gospel in such a way that he could contextualize it so that it made sense to uh, a mainly Hindu culture, finding points of contact, uh, but also not allowing the gospel to be domesticated by that culture, not allowing syncretism to occur. And his writings are eminently helpful on this front. But he talks about how in the process, he found the way that his own Christianity had itself become profoundly syncretistic. That it was only in this deep dialogue over scripture and theology and the gospel itself with Christians from this other culture who were grappling with it, that he was able to see how his own reading of the Bible and understanding of the gospel had been profoundly shaped by the modern scientific worldview by certain cultural and economic and political categories that he had been, been taught. And so it was only by engaging with these Christ, other Christians that he himself was able to hear the word of the Lord challenging him afresh. And it wasn't easy. Uh, this challenges some of his own sacred allegiances that he didn't even realize were uh, needing to be challenged. Do you see what this means for us? Even though we as Christians have heard the word of the Lord and accepted it, we need to continue to hear it afresh and allow it to oppose us in the ways that we are at odds with it. And the only way we can do this is in a dialogical encounter with one another, with other Christians especially, who are seeking to be faithful from a different cultural vantage point. This is why it's imperative that we as the church must stay engaged with the church tradition, Christians from other times, but especially must stay engaged with Christians from other places to allow the word of the Lord to speak prophetically into our own lives, to confront us 
in the ways that we've attempted to domesticate it. And you know what we may find in the process that we are challenged in some of the things we've taken for granted. But if we're willing to engage this process thoughtfully, prayerfully, scripturally, some of our ways of thinking can change in the process or be nuanced along the way. And the result is that we'll be better at proclaiming the word of the Lord to our own culture because we'll stand at more of a critical distance from it. Uh, I know over the last few months, I've really made a concerted effort to engage with some thinking from the African-American church. And it has been, and, and I've tried as opinionated, and, and I tend to think I know everything that there is to know, uh, to just listen, to just listen and grapple and think about these things. And it has been challenging. There are certain things I've taken for granted that I've had to rethink and wonder if I've understood the gospel in its fullness, if I have not sort of written certain things in my own image, or Another example is uh, reading a book recently by a Japanese theologian who spent most of his time in Southeast Asia in, in Buddhist context and seeing the way he interprets scripture. And it allows this critical edge and allows the gospel to oppose me as a white American, a modern person, uh, in such a way that I'm challenged. And so we need this kind of engagement and opposition within ourselves to remain fresh in proclaiming this to our own culture. Um, one of the things that we're doing as a church right now is we've got four people who are part of this cohort for the Institute for Cross-Cultural Missions. And this is them expanding their horizons, getting a perspective of other faithful Christians, and learning to bring that into us to expand our, our ways of thinking, to challenge us in some of the things that we might take for granted. And I look forward to seeing uh, how that might shape us in that engagement. So the word of the Lord generates opposition. Here's the last main point here. And this must also be said. The word of the Lord wins the day. The gospel proclamation achieves success. The word of the Lord wins the day. As we've seen in the reading of this passage, the Jewish hearers in Antioch and some of the people in power, they have the opportunity to hear the gospel, but they don't receive it. They oppose it. But look what happens in verse 48. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And now, of course, this leads to further opposition. Uh, the apostles are actually driven out of town, um, and they shake the dust off their feet like Jesus told them to do. But don't lose the fact that they meet with great success. They're making progress. They see the word of the Lord winning the day, and the church grows. Their proclamation is successful. This notion of success in the midst of opposition, yes, is itself recurrent throughout the book of Acts and throughout Paul's epistles. Uh, the word of God is, is pictured as this living organism with a power all of its own that spreads and grows like a weed. It's this unstoppable force. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
Acts chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Here in verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul tells the, Col the Colossian Christians that the word of the truth, the word of truth, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing, not only there, but in the whole world. It's almost as if the gospel is like this tiny little seed, unimpressive as it is, this human word that when sown, somehow becomes this giant tree. I feel like I'm stealing that metaphor from somewhere, but I can't remember where. But the point I want to make here is, is simple, but we need to remember that. It's if we embrace the task, the evangelistic task to which we are called, we will encounter opposition, yes, but we will find great success. Yes, we're surrounded by people who seem to us to be diametrically opposed to what we have to say. However, there are also people all over this city who will hear the message that we have to tell them, who will submit to its authority because it's not our word, but it's the word of the Lord, and who will rejoice with us in a life of discipleship to Jesus. They are out there, as the text says, appointed to believe for eternal life and waiting for us to claim them through our proclamation. See, I think the church in the United States has been in a defeatist funk for too long. It's spent long enough trying either to avoid all opposition by changing its message of God's lordship or by fighting opposition, by hunkering down and engaging in political warfare. And it's time for us to make ourselves vulnerable in the confidence that the word of the Lord will triumph, even as it is opposed. And it's only when we do this that we find ourselves like the disciples in verse 52, filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Do you realize you can have success in evangelism, in telling people about Christ? The word of the Lord wins the day. So if you're a Christian, you're here, and if you're a Christian, part of this church, you are part of a community called to proclamation of a message of the lordship of Jesus and all that that entails for how we live. You're sent out with this promise that as you speak of him, your words can become the word of the Lord that command an audience that generate opposition, but that will also meet with success. So you so should you now leave here today and go preach in the street or at Eastern Market in a confrontational style? Should you go to work tomorrow and blast your colleagues with email, evangelistic emails? Um, and get fired from your job. Uh, no, th those would be unwise tactics. I, I haven't been talking tactically here. What I want is a mind shift change, that you are empowered to go out with confidence and with the hope of success to allow King Jesus to make his claim through you in people's lives.
And we all need to think evangelistically and to embrace this as central to our calling. This is something I've been convicted by recently. I used to be engaged in evangelism constantly. Uh, but as a pastor, especially over the last couple of years, I've seen myself slip into a habit where I'm so focused on Christians and the church that I'm myself not leading the way in proclaiming the word of the Lord to those on the outside. And so I've been thinking about how to be intentional and tactical with this. And you do have to be intentional with this. So I'll close with a brief kind of pra very practical sort of framework. Um, uh, some tactics on being an evangelist in our culture. And I get this from one of my close friends who's probably the best evangelist I know, the best person at proclaiming the word of the Lord. And what he says he does is he just thinks in terms of evangelistic pathways. He calls them evangelistic pathways. I don't know if he got that from somewhere or he made it up himself, but he's just done this for as, as long as I've known him. And he's sort of like, thought about it as a system. And, and it generally has four steps. First, he builds new connections with people over common interests or things he already shares with them. Uh, so an example, he lives near Hollywood in California, and he's a movie buff. And there are a lot of other people that are like that. So he started a meetup.com group, and he assembles just rando film aficionados, and they get together, and they watch a movie in the theater and talk about it. Um, or he coaches softball for his daughter now, and so he meets other dads who bring their girls to practice and games. So he builds new connections over these common interests. He then connects with them personally. He goes out of his way to, to get to know some of them, or personally he'll meet them for coffee or a beer. Uh, and he doesn't hide who he is as a Christian, uh, but he also just gets to know them. He shares honestly about his own life and struggles and faith and doubt. Um, so he, he connects with them personally, and then he connects them to other Christians. So he'll throw parties and invite a lot of people from his church, but also invite some of his new friends into that to connect them to other Christians. And then finally, he, he will begin to connect them more explicitly to God. And so he says he'll, you know, knowing his, this person he knows, he'll invite them to a worship service, and then he'll talk to them after the service. What did you think of the worship? the songs, the sermon, um, and he'll have an honest conversation or, or he'll invite them to an evangelistic class if it's running and he'll start to talk to them about the claims of Jesus and he'll ask them questions about how they will respond. And he, you know what? As he does this, there are people that drop out along the way. There's people that are like, I don't want anything to do with this. But I can also tell you that he consistently sees friends and neighbors and fellow movie buffs and softball dads come to faith in Christ. And he sees the kingdom and his church expand and grow. And he, he's got such joy in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't feel guilty about evangelism. He's just doing it. And it's, it's great. And it's fun. So as you leave here commissioned afresh, not just to share your faith, but to proclaim the word of the Lord, what are your evangelistic pathways? How are you going to start to live this out in your own life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us, this gospel message which has transformed and changed our lives uh, of the coming of your son, 
who became one of us so that we could be adopted as your sons and daughters. Lord, help us to have an imagination for what you want to do through us in the people around us. Lord, inspire us afresh for this task you've given us of going into all the world and preaching the gospel and baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, through us, change our neighborhoods, change our city as more and more people come to worship you, not only in word, but in deed. Bless this endeavor, Lord. Take away the guilt from this and excite us by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.